0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. have left off in Pilgrim's Progress. Um, we'll start off with some review. Uh, hopefully you're able to be reading along. Um, if, if not, you should start because it's more beneficial that way. But... Um, Bring your copy with you if you can so you can mark things or see uh, what we're reading. That would be most helpful. And then today I'll be reading a a fair little bit from a kind of corollary work or a side work by a guy named Alexander White. I don't like him at all because he's way too convicting and you'll share my dislike for him here in just a few minutes. Uh, But by way of kind of refreshing our minds on what we've gone through, I know that review is not the funnest thing in the world, but the key to learning is repetition, and repetition is the key of, correct, you got it. So, uh, as uh, as Pilgrim leaves the city to pursue the celestial city, what's the city that he leaves? City of destruction. Uh, Two individuals follow him, their names are obstinate and pliable. Which one goes back first? Absent does. Pliable goes along because he likes the, uh, well, the gifts of God, but doesn't really want God himself and is turned back at the slough, slough correct. Slough is the author. I... It... Slough. slough is the verb. I've told you this, Johnny. You slough it off. A slough is where you get stu- uh, stuck. To slew is a past sense of slay. You kill something, <laughs> you slew it. Grammar matters around here. So we're going to really buckle down on this. The slough would despond. Who is the one who assists him out of the slough? Do you need help, Don? No, I, oh, you were giving me the name. Got it. Thank you. I don't want to hear about that. So <laughs> was it helpful? No, never mind. I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not in the slough anymore. So Help helps him out. Uh, Some characters' names are really, like, creative. Others, you're like, you just named him Help. All right, that's fine. So he goes along his way, and he makes it all the way to the narrow gate or the wicked gate. Um, And what happens right before an individual pulls Christian, I guess right after, pulls Christian through the door, what happens to the gate? Yeah, fiery darts seeking to destroy him. Who's the person who helps Christian through? Goodwill. I don't know you guys are doing. Excellent. And then the first thing that he encounters uh, after the wicked gate is the house of the interpreter. interpreter. Yet yeah, we, we mentioned a few times ago that every church is an interpreter's house. Every proper minister of the gospel is an interpreter helping the Christian along their way. So this is where we're going to buckle down and like really get into the, the nitty gritty as Nacho Libre says. So. He's one of my favorite theologians, by the way. Um, First room in the interpreter's house is the pastor. Correct. And what does he look like, David? Serious. So we know he is what kind of a pastor? A Baptist pastor. (laughs) Yeah. He's got that, that Baptist smile. Uh, so yeah, the stern man who is the one directing Christian to uh, the celestial city who always tell him the things he needs to know. Uh, the second room, I thought I heard Julie say it, the dusty room, so the law stirs up the dust in the heart and then the grace of the gospel settles and cleans the dust. Third room, yeah, this is every parent's least favorite room. The two kids, one's name is Passion, the other is? Patience. Which one do parents wish they have? Patience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So talking about the the kind of dispositions of those who either want every reward now in this life or they're willing to wait for the world that is to come. Now the Christian, they're willing to wait for the world that is to come. Uh, The fourth room, fireplace. So the devil's the one pouring water on the fire and the fire is grace begun in the heart and then we're taken behind the wall and who's pouring oil? Yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ pouring the, pre, the preserving oil. And even though the water increases, what increases all the more? The fire does because the oil of Christ. Absolutely. Uh, fifth one, I mentioned, I think this is my favorite one. Yeah, the palace, the violent man. So the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Violent men take it by force. And then everyone's least favorite room, man in the iron cage. Absolutely. <laughs> no, one, no one reads that and like, man, I'm encouraged. Um, we read it and we're like, oh boy, I don't want to be that guy. So, uh, the man in the iron cage, And then the last one, this is one that Pastor Charlie did last time. Yeah, the man of trembling, the guy in the dream. And he sees kind of the, kind of the end of the world unfolding right before him. And he's standing on the edge of a, a really big chasm, right? And does he fall in? Well, we don't know. So Christian wakes up from that. So that's, that brings us all the way back up now. Oh, I did. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Before he gets to the wicked gate, that was a test. You guys should have caught that. Good job, Brian. <clears throat> Before he gets to the wicked gate, he meets a person whose name is? Should we trust Mr. Worldly Wise Man? Do we too often trust Mr. Worldly Wise Man? Yeah, sadly. He goes to the town of? Legality, and he bumps, well he's looking for legality, and his son, civility, Civility, is a sweet looking kid, and he feels like the mountain's going to fall on him and crush him, right? The mountain, what's the name of the mountain? Sinai. Yeah, it feels like the law will absolutely crush him. So that brings us up to where we're at. If you have the green copy, uh, you're looking at page 38. If you're not in the green copy, be warm and be filled. So it's right after the poem um, where Christian comes, uh, he's at the cross on the sepulcher, his sins are forgiven, or he he has an assurance of his sins being forgiven, and there's a bit of a a poem there. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must hear the burden fall from off my back. Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Beautiful, beautiful lines from Bunyan at this point. So after the, um, the eyes of Christian are drawn to the cross and to the sepulcher and his burden falls away, You can see that there's another transition in development. He he reminds us again that this whole sequence is a dream. So I saw then again in my dream that Christian goes on from this point. And so he comes to to the bottom and comes to this lower part. And uh, where he saw, a little out of the way, three men fast asleep. Now, I'll, I'll confess... In prepping this section, it reminded me a bit of uh, where I grew up In there is a lake. It's, it's not that, it's kind of a long one, but it's not very wide, but it's exceptionally deep. Not, it's not like Tahoe deep, but it's really, really deep. It's like a thousand feet deep. It's not very far across. And so there's a few times where you go across it and there's this like eerie stillness to it because of the depth of the water, even though it's not that far of a journey. That is uh, what reminds me of this section here. There's only a few characters, it's only a few pages, and yet there's a depth to what Bunyan's saying here, that we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks upon it. We'll try not to, but this was really a convicting section. So he runs into three folks who are asleep, and they're chained, or they have fetters around their, I think he says heels. What he means is their ankles. And they, uh, they have three, They have uh, well, names. Simple, sloth, and presumption. Christian, seeing that they line this case, went to them, and so he seeks to wake them up. On which side of the wicked gate are these gentlemen? On this side of it. Now, as we read of their description, we would tend to think, and this is where um, this is where White comes in, is really, really uh, handy. We would think that they would be maybe outside the city of destruction, maybe in the vicinity of the Slava Despond maybe just outside the Wicked Gate. But Bunyan puts them here, and he does it for a reason. And he does it. See, I should have opened this before I got here. He does it for a purpose. He does it because, let me find it here, Um, we would have looked for these miserable men somewhere near the city of destruction or the town of stupidity. He must be referring to the second volume, or he's just being really mean. Um, Or best, somewhere yet outside the wicked gate. But Bunyan did not lay down this pilgrim's progress on any abstract theory or on any easy and pleasant presupposition of the Christian life. He constructed his so lifelike book out of his own experiences as a Christian man as well as out of what he'd learned as a Christian minister. These are going to be folks that we would find within the church. It's not those that we would find out there in the world per se, although they would exist. These are folks that we've worshiped alongside of these are folks that we've lived life alongside of and he puts it here intentionally to be alarming like he's 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 seeking to challenge and provoke and so christian goes to them he tries to wake them up uh if you have an uh, not updated copy he says uh, uh, if per adventure i don't know how many of you have a practice of looking up words that you don't know but does anyone know what the term per adventure means that it may be, yeah, actually, correct. Yeah, it means perhaps. I had never heard of that word before. So he says he goes over there, perhaps to wake them up. He calls to them to see if they would be willing to and to help them off with their irons. And then on page 39, you can see he gets a response from th- three of them. Now, I love his zeal here. He starts telling them about this roaring lion that's about and they'll become prey for his teeth. He, he's a little zealous <laughs> early on here. A Christian's in his cage stage and uh, is, well, he's got a lot of zeal and a lot of vinegar in the veins. So, simple responds to uh, actually the verses that, Pilgr- or that Christian quotes to him. Simple responds like this. I see no danger. Sloth said, yet a little more sleep. And presumption said, every tub must stand on its own bottom. And so they laid down to sleep again, and Christian went on his way. And you're going, wow, what a weird little <laughs> little moment uh, that's shared there. Now, if we consider the names by which these men go by, the first one whose name is Simple, what do you think Bunyan is getting at by that name? You can also find out more about it by his response. What do you think Bunyan's getting at? This would be where you interact. He's a woeful ignorance. Okay, he doesn't believe the truth very much. What are other things that are meant by simple? Okay, so uh, ignorance and ignorance of the word, right? Uh, Someone said fool, yeah. So simple is someone who... You know, if you read through the character sketches by Alexander White, he would say it, it. It is a reference to his his knowledge of things, not as much a reference to like his uh, mental acumen. Like, it's not saying like he's a little slow. Like, no, that's not what's being pointed out so much. That might be the case, but that's not exactly what's being drawn out. White says uh, it's not so much a small mind and is weak in understanding that is the fatal danger. The fatal danger is his imbecilic way. You can tell White's just really delicate in the way he talks. His imbecilic way of treating his small mind. In our experience of him, we cannot get him uh, to read instructive books. We can't get him to attend men's class. Where, and we would ask ourselves, where does he spend his Sabbath and his week evenings? He's fettered in the irons of ignorance and inexperience. Self-complacency, this sleeping fool has been put around his neck. White says it's not, it's not like, okay, maybe he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Maybe he's not even a knife. He might be a fork or a spoon. But that's not the primary problem. Problem is he has no intent to, to learn. So this would be a young person in the church or maybe a new Christian and older saints in the Lord are trying to encourage them, hey, read this book. This will, this will really help you along the way. And they go, no. Like, well, you know what? We, we, we have more than Sunday morning here. You should, you should be coming and learning. Like, this is your time to be growing in the Lord. And they go, no. We're like Well, you could, you could join us for prayer, and we would instruct you in the way on how to pray and how to seek the Lord and how to grow. No, he's so ignorant, he doesn't even, not, not only is unaware of the dangers, but is really kind of not all that interested in pursuing the things that would solve them. The initial problem isn't that he doesn't know, it would be his unwillingness to grow. Now, not, I don't want a like, raising of hands or testimonies given, but Have you ever been immensely frustrated with someone in your life who refused to even accept help? And you gave them, maybe you gave them a book and they won't read it. You gave them a sermon, they won't listen to it. You offered to drive them to church in case driving to church was too uh, odious of a task. They wouldn't do it. That's simple. And notice where it lands simple. While he's in the church-ish, what is his state in Pilgrim's Progress? He's asleep and he's chained. Now, White's going to say that 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 status will only last a little while. It'll get worse. Simple is a dangerous place to be. Simple is a dangerous place for the people in our lives, but who, who is simple the most dangerous for? This person. Yeah. To ever think that we could stop growing in our understanding. To ever think we've got to the point where we've learned enough or grown enough, that is an exceptionally dangerous place. Now, he's not the only one in this section. He has a buddy sleeping next to him. His name is Sloth. Sloth says... A little more sleep. That's all sloth says. Now you can uh, deduce many things both from his answer as well as his name. What what could we deduce from sloth? He's a rather hairy individual if he's anything like the animal. But what else than that? He's lazy. Doesn't want change. Too much effort. He's the sluggard of proverbs. There's something in his answer, though. Look at his answer. A little more sleep. Yes, it, it, it's indicative of laziness, but there's something else maybe hiding in the wings. Oh, well, he doesn't want to be awoken to the truth, yeah. He doesn't care, yeah. He thinks there'll be a better time to pursue the Lord than this time. Just a little more sleep. There, 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 there's something about the current season that is not advantageous to growth and there's coming a season where he will be, namely the one after he's had a little more sleep. And so right now, whether it's like, I'm in college and I just, I just right now is not, if anything you want in college, it's a little more sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Especially during finals week. Uh, And then you like get married and you're like, man, I mean, we're, we're blending our lives together. No time in my life will be this busy as when we're like, young and married. All the people who have kids go, yeah, right. And then, uh, and then you think, well, when I get older, that's when I'll have all this energy and time. <laughs> right, there's always a better season. There's always a reason to not pursue Christ now. And there's always a believed lie that something will get better in the future. That's sloth. Uh, White says of sloth, sloth had a far better head than simple, right? Uh, You can even kind of deduce that from his name. But what of that when he made no better use of it? We all have enemies in our own souls that never sleep. Whatever we might do, there are no irons on their heels, They never procrastinate. They never say to their master, a little more slumber. White's point is that if our enemies don't rest, if our enemies are unbound, if our enemies uh, don't take their foot off the gas, what kind of foolishness would it be for a Christian to do that? Uh, He has a great... um, I I don't think I would have been friends with this guy. Maybe I would have. I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't have been friends with me. But he has a wonderful, I think it's here. Yeah, here it is. He, um, in two sections, he says, let me see. So Alexander, I assume he's referring to Alexander the Great. Alexander used to leave his tent at midnight and go round the camp and spear to his post a sentinel that he found sleeping. The violence that even the pagans can show when they're at warfare, that so often Christians are just too lazy to. So with regards to our own hearts, should we not be uh, exceedingly vigilant with regards to that uh, laziness that can come in? Now, often when you're brought to faith in Christ, what, what are some of the marks of those first Days, weeks, months, even years. What are some of the things that mark those early days? Zeal. I mean, you, you, you want to tell everybody and sometimes everything what happened to you and that they should repent and believe in Christ, right? You're just full of vinegar in a good way, if that could be a good thing. So what happens the longer you're in the faith? Or what can happen? Zeal diminishes. Yeah, you've fought some of the big battles, you've got some years under your belt, you've had a few books exposited, which depending on your church could mean you've been there for a few months or a few decades. Never mind. Maybe you can have a memory that stretches back before Romans here. That's like, that's, you've been here a long time. (laughs) There have been kids who've been born and raised in Romans. What a wonderful thing to have happen to them. But you can start to think, I've heard some stuff, I know some stuff, I've got it down. And you can take your foot off the gas, and you can think, you know, it's really good for those young folks to be zealous, maybe think that there's a good reason for us not to be. That's sloth. He is the, the one who's always folding his hands in Proverbs, the one who's... Um, Yeah, afraid of lines in the way, although we'll get to folks who quite literally do that here in uh, probably next week. The next person that he runs into, and this is maybe the scariest of them, is presumption. Presumption is a very interesting response. I'm waiting for an old timer to explain it to me. Every tub must stand on its own bottom. I would uh, welcome any wisdom at this point. (laughs) I think it's, well, you got to stand on your own two feet, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to figure this out on my own. You just leave me alone. I'll, I'll, I've got this. I'll be, I'll be fine. Seems to be, if I'm missing something, uh, I don't know. I didn't know tubs had feet. Um, I guess bathtubs do, but I was seeing like a metal tub. Anyway. So, presumption, what, what can we conclude by his name? It's pretty obvious. He presumes. What does he presume upon? His own righteousness? Yeah, possibly. Pride? What's that? Sure, yes, yeah, there, there could be a bit of that going on. Does the New Testament ever use the word presume? yeah I could do that do we but uh I should have written it down do you- do you presume upon what is it the grace of God, something like that yeah so he's already had his sins forgiven, and that seems to have really lessened the seriousness with which he takes future sins. Um, White says um, of, let me find it here because this one's terrible. Presumption presumed upon his pardon. He presumed upon the abounding grace of God. He presumed upon the blood of Christ. He was so high on the atonement that he held that the gospel was not sufficiently preached to him unless not past sin only, but present and all future. There was a reprobate in Dante who all the time he was repenting had his eye on the next opportunity to sin. Now our presumption is like that. So this can be um, one of the... One of the dangers of viewing grace. Now, does God's grace cover all of our sin? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it then turned into a license to sin? Never. Never. Now, presumption gets really comfortable with that. Really comfortable with that. We want to be careful not to, I mean, because we could argue the other side of him. Like, well, like, God's grace does cover. Okay, that is true. God's grace does cover our sin, past, present, and future. But that is impacting uh, presumption in a very perverse way. Presumption has become quite comfortable uh, with, with his own sin. He's quite at ease with it. And what results has that had on him in Pilgrim's Progress? He sleeps and he's chained. And that will continue and will get worse if he uh, allows it to, um, to go on. Uh, he, uh, White has some great stuff from Thomas Goodwin. He talks about the things that used to uh, afflict our conscience, doesn't afflict us. Nearly as sharply as it does, as it used to, and that is because of presumption. Um, yeah, he's just got too much to do. I would recommend this book if you are like, man, I love getting kicked in the teeth. This would be, uh, well, I'll just read one more for you because I want, you know, those who get hurt by books hurt other people with those same books. He says, I think I would find. That was really close to the truth. He says of presumption. I think I find, um, I think I would find him out if I heard him pray. Oof. Stop this. If I heard him preach, oof, or select a psalm for public or family worship. Or if I heard him say grace at dinner table or reprove his son or scold his servant. Presumptuous sin has so much of the venom and essence of sin in it. Forgiven or unforgiven, even a little of it never leaves the sinner as it found him. The idea is it scars him. Even if his fetters are knocked off, there's always a piece of the poisonous iron left in his flesh. There's always a fang in the fetter. Terrible. And so the Christian that thinks they can play with sin and walk away unscathed is presumptuous. Really, a, I mean, just a dire, a, a dire warning. He says, I think it's, sorry to be flipping back and forth, I should have uh, marked this better. Um, he says, so this is where Bunyan leaves them. Bunyan's shocked, at, or not Bunyan, uh, Christian's shocked as he walks away. A White says, you know what, if Bunyan would walk back in a little bit of time, the, the chains wouldn't be around the ankle, they'd be around the neck. The vividness of this section really is alarming. Really, really is. And so the, idea, or the, the response of the Christian should be what? What would the response be to simple? If we were to not be like, well, yeah, my mother-in-law should read, like, no, no, talk about you. Leave mother-in-laws out of it. <laughs> What should your response be to simple? Pursue knowing the Lord intimately, fully, heartily. Never rest on a, a status. Yeah, What's, what might be one or two other applications for simple? Yeah, we up going to be part of it. Yeah, uh, part of it would not be just knowledge only, but it would be exercise of that knowledge. So if White's correct, whittling down his even church interaction or attendance to the lowest common denominator, dangerous thing to do. Uh, how about for sloth? How would we respond to sloth? What's that? Be alert. Don't, well, yeah, don't wait for tomorrow. There's no time like the present to pursue the Lord. You, you aren't guaranteed tomorrow. Put your phone down. <laughs> yeah, right, that's, a, that's a real practical one. Yeah, give yourself to the things that stir up zeal and cut out the things that quench them. If there's someone in your life that's quenching it, I would limit interaction. If there's someone in your life who increases zeal, you know, you know those kinds of people. Avail yourself of their company. Sometimes the, the, the zeal of another brother or sister in Christ can fan the flame of that. You ever come in here cold and you hear the saints singing and their zeal, like, like billows, can get your zeal back on track? Yeah, that's a proper use. But sloth, we'd be like, you know what? It's not a good day to go to church. Like, <clears throat> I might have a little scratch in the throat. <laughs> We've all been there. The kids, they didn't sleep well. We have all these reasons. Uh, you know we're good at making those excuses. Uh, last one, presumption. What should we learn from presumption? Walk with humility. They all. Yeah, yeah well, that is true. All, all three of them absolutely need... Humility. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What else from presumption? Yeah, examine it. Don't take God's grace for granted. Patrick. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. We, we're going to meet two characters here in just a minute that are very scary uh, because they're probably the guy in the mirror. But yeah, don't, don't, uh, don't ever take the foot off the gas. Heaven is called rest for a reason. That's when we rest. But not, but not now. Let's not take for granted God's grace. Uh, always go to God for grace. Don't ever let the, uh, the fool would then wrongly say, like, okay, I'm not going to presume on his grace, so I'm not going to go to him for grace, and so I'm going to pull myself, like, no, no, that's actually another pitfall to fall into. But never take grace for granted. If you continue on, we've covered all of, like, one paragraph. Awesome. Uh, on page 39, Christian says, he was troubled to think that men in this danger with little esteem the kindness of him so freely offered to him. It's interesting, keep, like, tuck away in your head, Christian is trying to wake these guys up from their slumber. I feel like we might come back around on that theming just like a page and a half. Uh, so he, as he's going along, he's troubled by them. Um, he's troubled by their irons. Like there was something about the piece of bondage that bothered him. It should bother all of us. And as he's doing, as he was troubled thereabout, he espied, not just spied, espied, two men who came tumbling over the wall on the left hand, so they were liberal, obviously, (laughs) they came came in on the narrow way. Uh, and, they made, uh, and they made up a pace to him, and the name of the one was Formalist, and the name of the other, Hypocrisy. I already know I'm not going to like either of these two hombres. So um, as they drew close to him, they entered into discourse. They g- began to talk to him, and Christian says, Gentlemen, whence came you, and whither do you go? Formalist and Hypocrisy said that they were born in the land of vainglory. <laughs> it's not a good place to be from, <laughs> I'm not from a noble place either, but it's not named Vainglory. Um, And we're going, this is fascinating. I wish we just had time to drill down into this. We're going for praise to Mount Zion. I wonder if there's a lot there. Especially considering their names, formalist and hypocrisy. They want the praise and the admiration and the recognition of being those who are going to Mount Zion. Oh, there's sneaky little devices that lay in the heart of a human, isn't there? Christian says, why didn't you come through the gate? That seems like a logical uh, question. Like, I saw you guys fall over the wall. Why didn't you come through the gate? Now, this is just, I'm I'm sorry, I'm gonna read some here because it's just too good to summarize. Um, Don't you know that it's written that he that cometh not in by the door, but climbeth up over some other ways, a thief and a robber. Christian's really subtle at this point, isn't he? <laughs> Formless in hypocrisy, they, they tell him that, uh, that to go to the gate for the entrance was by all their countrymen counted too far. And therefore, their usual way was to make a shortcut of it. So they're saying, well, yeah, I mean, where we're from in vain glory, it's just too far to go all the way around. And they actually use, it's really interesting how they argue this, they use the common practice of a lot of people to justify their practices. Fascinating. It's like nothing has changed in the world. But Christian says to them, uh, but will it not be counted a trespass against the Lord of the city, whether they are bound, thus to violate his revealed will? Christian is, is, he's not letting them off the hook. He says, listen, like, don't you know that the, the ruler of the cities actually revealed his will and his law, and you are knowingly transgressing that. Like you you know that's what you're doing. Listen to their response. They told him that as for that, he need not trouble his head thereabout, for what they did they had custom for or tradition for, and could produce, if it were needed, testimony that would witness for more than a thousand years this was a practice. They say, Christian, don't get all wound up about this. We've been doing this for a long time. And if push came to shove, we could show that our tradition has been this for more than a thousand years. And so they cite not God's or the Lord of the land's revealed law. They cite not his revealed will. They cite what? I wonder if there's something to that in Bunyan's writing that there's a whole Roman Catholic Church whose bread and butter could say that we've for more than a thousand years have been doing this. And they think that that is some um, explanation. So if you notice, if you do have a marginal note, the yellow, the, the yellow copy doesn't have the marginal notes. The red one does and the green one does. Some of these are really, really helpful. It says that because they didn't come around the door... They say something in the vindication of their own, let me just read the whole thing. They that come into the way, but not by the door, think that they can say something in vindication of their own practices. There's always an answer or a reason or an excuse as to why they don't have to go through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now for some, it's not convenient, it's too far around. For others, it's because we have lots of tradition that's done it this way. For others, I mean, you can just pile up all, but there's always going to be uh, those reasons or excuses, and none of them uh, will be uh, holding up for, uh, well, in the court. And so Christian asks them basically, well, do you think tradition's going to hold up in the court of law? They actually give a threefold answer. First, they, they re- double down on, we have a thousand-year custom and list, look at the way that they uh, speak of the judge. It's in the middle of page 40. We have a long standing above a thousand years. And would doubtless be admitted as a thing legal? What's the next little phrase? By an impartial judge. The idea is if the king, if the Lord of the lands would disagree with him, there must be some corruption in him. If he finds me guilty of something, there's something something wrong with him if he condemns my thousand-year practice. They actually slight or um, impinge the character of the judge. Isn't that what we always do when we think our ways are better than God's ways? We impinge both the wisdom as well as the character of the judge. And besides, uh, they said, if we get into the way... What matter is it that, uh, by which way we get in? Isn't that really similar to the, the ends justifies the, the means? Hey, we're here. We're on our way to Zion. Does it really matter how we got here? And Christian's are like, yeah, it kind of matters. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of matters that you came through the Lord Jesus Christ. You came through the gospel of Christ. That's the only way that you can enter into the narrow way. And it says, and if we are in, we're in. And you are but in the way who, as we perceive, came in at the gate, and we are also in the way that came tumbling over the wall, wherein now is thy condition better than ours. Pragmatism. So just look at the way that they're measuring both their life and their practice. Pragmatic, worldly rationale founded on traditions of men rather than the simple, clear presentation of the gospel. one of, And they're all doing it for praise, which to me is fascinating. And they're doing it in a very related and yet distinguishable way. Formalist being the one who um, has the form, and the, he checks the boxes, and he, he does all the right things. Legalist does them, but he does them in a craftier, different kind of way. And so, as they're walking, we'll, we'll actually explain Uh, explain the character of these two men a little fuller in just a second. Their conversation's not going, like, really well. And so Christian says that, hey, I walk by the rule of the master, and um, by the way, and and you, by the rude working of your fancies. I like Christian. He says what he means and means what he says. I like this dude. Uh, He's got an excellent... um, A little poem down at the bottom of page 40 that we can't, we just don't have time to get into. He is rebuking these men for uh, for just for their lawlessness and for them hopping over the wall and uh, avoiding Christ. To this, they made little answer to him, only they bid him look to himself. What would be a way of saying that nowadays? Mind your own business. Like, hey, or don't judge me. You stay in your lane, you do your thing, that's your truth, this is mine. All under the name of what? Christianity. Yeah. While we could get our arms wrapped around that a little better if, if there was a different religion, we'd be like, okay, it makes sense that they're they're marching to a different set of rules. This can happen in the church too. And so... They went on without much conference. It means they didn't have much to talk about. Except, say these two men told Christian, they told him a couple things, both of them are messed up, that the law as to the laws and ordinances, they doubted not that they should conscientiously do them as he. Interesting. So they're attacking uh, his character and the way that he would obey things. Therefore, uh, said they, we see not wherewith thou differest from us. We're not that different. Even though he just got done pointing out all the ways in which they're different, they're trying to say that we're not. Fascinating, richly profound next phrase. But by the coat that is on thy back. We're the same as you, except you got a different coat. You might say, why are they bringing up his clothes? Where was he given this coat? At the sepulcher, what would this coat be symbolic of? The righteousness of Christ. So while they are trying to say, look how similar we are. We're the same except for that coat you got. That's kind of a big deal. <laughs> like, we're the same except you're clothed in Christ's righteousness. Like, oh, well, I mean, if that's all. And then they mock his coat. Ooh, this is fascinating. Which was as we trow... Uh, like to me, that's like a weird way of saying throw, but it means to think or to believe. Uh, we believe, given thee by some neighbor to hide the shame of your nakedness. They mock it as though like someone had pity on you because you were you were like practically naked, and they just didn't want to look at you. What a terrible way, a despising of the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that what every legalist and formalist does? There's something odious to them in the righteousness of Christ. Formalism and hypocrisy want to make their own. There's something offensive about the cross of Christ and about the righteousness of Christ that they cannot stomach. And that then indicates or dictates the way that they live their life. Uh, going down further, Christian is like, well, I'm kind of really into the coat that's on my back. The Lord of the palace gave it to me. Uh, and he did give it to cover. I, I love that he agrees. Yeah, he gave it to me to cover my nakedness. And what they meant as an as a attack and a slander against him, he's like, I, I readily confess I had nothing of my own. And then and the, that's not a shameful thing to admit. I love that Christian turns their uh, attack against him back on them and says, yeah, you're right. He did give it to me and it does cover my nakedness and I'm like really good with that. Um, he, he talks about how he stripped off the rags that were on his back. Look at the top of verse, or verse page 42. To these things they gave him no answer. They only looked upon each other and laughed. Simple Christian, overly simplistic Christian, relying on the, um, on the righteousness of Christ, not meriting it yourself, not doing it your own way. Foolish little Christian. If we consider, in the few minutes we have left, consider what is meant by formalist. We've bumped into a similar thing on the other side of the gate. But this one's on this side of the gate, right? He would have a lot uh, in common with Mr. Legality and his pretty son, Civility. But what would be meant by formalist? Form of a legalist, yeah. What are some of the ways in which we describe a formalist? Yeah, looks like a good person. So if you were to look with human eyes, would he look like an upstanding? Yeah. Fine Christian. Really good one. The bad man says, we all begin our religious life being formalists. You're like, why are you reading this? He hurt me, I'm hurting you. And we were not all together to blame for that. Now he's not blame shifting here, be careful. He's proven a point that is scary. Our parents were the first to blame for that. And then our teachers and then our ministers. You're like, okay, he's blaming other people. I can get on board with this. They made us say our psalm and our catechism to them. And if we only said our sacred lesson without stumbling, we were straightway rewarded with their highest praise. They seldom took the trouble to make us understand the things we said to them. They were more than content with our correct repetition of words. We were never taught either to read or repeat with our eyes on the object, he's speaking of Christ, and we had come to our manhood before we knew how to seek for the visual image that lies at the root of all of these words, and thus the ill-taught schoolboy became in us the father and confirmed um, formalist. This, as a parent, this hurt. As a minister, it hurt. As a Christian, it, it hurt all the way around. He says that the formalist, uh, he describes them. Oh, man. Oh, geez. Uh, he never says a word to show either that he sees or feels what he reads. And his household, before all this, he's like, they never miss family worship. They never, he they would never allow, you're like, oh, stop that mess. At least that's what I say to him. Um, He repeats uh, his regulation with prayer. He never says a word to show that he sees or feels what what he's reading. His household breaks up without an idea in their heads or an affection in their hearts. He comes to church and goes through public worship in the same wooden way. He sits through the Lord's table in the same formal and ceremonious manner. His eyes are of glass, his hands of wood, and a heart without either blood or motion in it. His mind and his heart were destroyed in his youth. And all his religion is in religion of rites and ceremonies. Without sense or substance. Uh, he'll go on later to, um, he quotes Rutherford at several points. Um, he talks about the formalist having a proud heart that needs to be humbled to the dust, what you're saying, Barbara. He needs to come down a second, a third, and a tenth place from where the praise of men have taken him. Essentially, how um, White describes a formalist is a person who knows the truth but doesn't love it. Full head, empty or cold heart. Dresses the right way, sings the right words. You couldn't, by looking at him, detect it. But there's a coldness because there's no affection for God in him. And he's okay with it. So what he's not saying is, he's a Christian who wrestles with a cold heart. Sees the coldness, fights it. That's not what he's saying. Formalist excuses his cold heart because he has the right stuff in his head. You can say it this way. For him, it is enough to be reformed. It's enough to be a reformed Baptist. It's enough to go to a really good church that preaches the word. It's enough to lead family worship. That can excuse a lack of love in the heart. Terrifying. He goes on to, hypocrite's just too good to skip, and so we'll probably just bump it till next time. (laughs) But one of the things that he mentions with hypocrite, and it would hold true with formalists as well, is uh, a hypocrite is not someone who knows themselves to be a hypocrite only. Same with the formalist. Sometimes we think, and he's got a, a beautiful, well, it's terrible, section with regards to a hypocrite as like, we would think a hypocrite is like, I knowingly deceive those around me. He goes, oh, no, that's only one type of hypocrite. The same is true of a formalist. Sometimes we would think a formalist would know that's what he was. Not always. Not always. A formalist in his own eyes is doing it right. And that's the scary thing about it. They've allowed the forms and the shapes and the words to be the sum and substance of what it means to be a Christian. This is one of the reasons, and we'll try to like Turn it positive, right here at the end. This is why we need one another in the Christian life. So that when I see formalism creeping up in your life, and you see it creeping up in my life, you can encourage and rebuke. Because what we are often to ourselves is this, we're blind. And we need others in our life who know us and live alongside of us to tell us, You're kind of becoming a jerk, dude. (laughs) Is that not a really loving thing to say to someone? What would hate be? Say nothing at all. Just awkwardly avoid me because he's a jerk. (laughs) Love would go and be like, brother, sister, I see coldness creeping in. I'm not trying to judge. I'm not trying to impugn. I'm not trying to browbeat. I'm concerned. Because you don't want to be a formalist. You don't want to be hypocrisy. Again, sorry to bump us another week behind. But there's, there's too much with regards to hypocrisy. Uh, Timorous and I forget the other guy's name, fearful or something. There's too much there to, to brush over lightly. We need one another to help us not, not grow that way. Is formalism or legalism the native religion of the, Christ, of, of the human heart? So which way are we going to tend to just drift that way? And we need brothers and sisters in our life, and we need them to speak the gospel of grace to us, and we need them to point us back to the coat of the righteousness of Christ that we bear and remind us, you're not that big of a deal, but you belong to the one who is. And you're standing before God is not you. You're standing before God is Christ. Christ. And that's where, our, that's where all of who and what we are lie. That's why the Christian life is not an independent endeavor. It's one among family. It's one together. And so let's, let's seek even today to shake off the shackles of formalism that have found their way around our cold hearts and stir up, ask God to stir up, zeal for the living, resurrected, ascended, and seated Christ today. We're going si- to sing some fantastic songs. Let's not do it coldly. Amen. We're going to hear the word of God really clearly proclaimed. Don't hear it passively. Hear it going, change me. We're going to hear us two sermons on bitterness. If anyone in here doesn't struggle with bitterness, you definitely need to be here because you are blind to the ways in which you struggle with bitterness. To the rest of us who know it's a struggle, well, we'll we'll be here, and we'll ask God to take the sharp knife of his word and go to work. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness, and we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you that you make it your business to pursue cold-hearted formalists. We thank you for our older brother in the faith, John Bunyan. And that he painfully wrote of the things that he knew both personally and the things he'd experienced in others. And to warn us against being simple, being slothful and presumptuous and formal. Father, we pray that if there's those among us today that are like those first three in bondage, that you would set them free today. That you'd wake them up and set them free. We pray for all of us in the ways that We find little bits or whole lots of formalists in our heart, that you would stir up in us zeal for your name, and that you would both sharpen our thoughts of you and stir up our heart for you. You demand both. You tell us in your word that we are to love you with our hearts and our minds. We pray that we do that today. In your name do we ask it. Amen.